Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you this morning. And uh, looks like our weather might take a change this week. We look forward to that. 50 degrees will feel like 75 to most of us, won't it? Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 22 and following. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the countryside of Judea, and he remained there and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized. John had not yet been put in prison. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the time we've had this morning to to pray and to give and to sing praises to your name. And we come to this time of the ministry of your word, the preaching of your word, and we pray that you would bless it and that you would be pleased to open our hearts to it so that we might be and become what you would have us to be in Christ. We pray, Lord, your blessing on this church and all that it stands for, all that it endeavors to do both here and around the world, and we ask, Lord, that you would bless this morning's time of worship in the Word, in Jesus' name, amen. Someone has said that the greatest saint in the sight of God is the man who is thoroughly clothed with humility. And that bears true throughout Scripture. Jesus said the one who serves will be the greatest. 
There is, there is something in God's economy that makes humility the pinnacle of what the person in Christ should be. Now, last time we were in this passage, we saw the deep humility of John the Baptist as he and Jesus were baptizing in the same region. John's disciples became quite annoyed because people were leaving John and going over to Jesus. And so to address this, John reveals the basic truth of that's a true of every single person on earth, that what we have, we have by the gracious hand of heaven and not our own. It's not of our own making. It comes from above. Every good gift comes from above. The only difference in this truth among people of the earth is that believers recognize that everything comes from God and unbelievers think that they've gotten it themselves. However, when understood, particularly by believers, when understood and believed, the truth of this brings about a freedom that is unknown otherwise. There is a freeing aspect to understanding that everything that you have, everything you you say you own, all that you possess is not yours. That you only have it by the gracious hand of God that frees you of those things. When you recognize that they're not yours, they belong to God, you're just simply His steward to use those things for a time. And they can come, things can come, and things can go, and you can let go, and you can receive graciously and thankfully, because you realize that it all came from heaven, it's not yours, it's his. There's a freeing aspect to that. This was certainly true of John's ministry as well. There's no trace of jealousy, no hint of competition from John about Jesus' ministry. He reminded his disciples that he was not the Messiah. This they had heard from the very beginning. His purpose in life was to point people to the Savior. And so John was a speck of light from a star that is eclipsed by the rising of the sun. John was just a small light to show, point to the great light that is in Christ. Now what was taking place here in verses 22 through 21, as we read just a few moments ago, or uh, through 30, excuse me, that we read is just exactly what John expected to happen, just what John wanted to happen. He makes it very clear that to follow him is to follow Christ. And that's the way it should be for any of us. The Apostle Paul, as great a man as he was, as great a Christian as he was, warned people to follow him only as he followed Christ. So our our task in life is not to point people to ourselves, Or just to simply say, do as I do, as we sometimes say to our kids, you do it because I said do it. But to point them to the one whom we're following, 
and say, follow me only as long as I follow Christ. And if I depart, don't follow me anymore. This was John's attitude. It would certainly be sinful to try to place John above Jesus or for John, equally sinful to have people follow him rather than pointing them to Christ. John was the forerunner of the Messiah and as such, his work was coming to an end and John was perfectly satisfied with the fact that his ministry of pointing people to Jesus was coming to an end. That's why he said in verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. He knew and understood that he was only the messenger to announce the coming of the king. And so in essence, he is saying, if you want to be true, if you want to be a true follower of God, then Follow Jesus. He's the Messiah, not me. To illustrate that, John makes, wants to make it firm, firm, perfectly clear to his disciples. And so he uses an illustration from the marriage customs of the day in Judea. We ended last time with this illustration. So I'm not going to go back over it in full, but just to simply say that the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom are in view here. The friend of the bridegroom, when the friend of the bridegroom's task was finished and the bride was brought to the groom, the bridegroom could step back and see his task as complete and he had great joy in his heart for the bridegroom himself, his friend. It was all done for love of the bridegroom. And as the rising prominence of Jesus' ministry upset the disciples of John, there were floods of rejoicing in John himself because this was what he lived for. This was what he lived for. In the Old Testament, the bride of God was Israel. We looked at that from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea. And of course, John would have had absolutely no idea at this point in time that God would save people from every nation under, uh, on earth and that those people would, that God saved would become the bride of Christ. He had no inkling of that whatsoever. He had no understanding that this church would be made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so having fulfilled his work, he was ready to decrease while Christ increased. And so if we're going to fulfill our task in life, if we are going to finish that work that God has given us to do as believers, then we must also decrease and Christ must increase. And what that looks like practically in life is simply a matter of denying self and taking up our cross daily and following Him. That brings us to verse, verses 31 to 36 this morning. And 
This text from verses 31 to 36 is a disputed text. Some believe that John the Baptist is no longer uh, speaking here, but that rather it's the uh, John Apostle John uh, who is giving uh, the commentation commentary at this point. But I see no reason to to believe otherwise that this is not John the Baptist. I think it is. I think John the Baptist has been given revelation here at this point, and he is still speaking about the Messiah. Jesus has already stated in verse 13 that as the Son, He came from above. He said, No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus plainly makes the statement that He came from heaven. Came from heaven to earth. John recognizes that he was from the earth. In other words, he was he was a man of the earth, just like all other men are. Jesus is the only one that was not of the earth. He was from heaven. John was a mere mortal, sinful, born in sin, just like every other individual. Jesus was not. Coming from heaven, he was the sinless son implanted in the womb of a virgin to be born not like other men in sin, but to be born sinless. As an individual like other men, John had all the sinful tendencies that other men born of Adam have. In fact, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11 quickly. Matthew chapter 11. Notice verses 2 and 3. John has now been thrown into prison by Herod. He is awaiting execution, although at this point um, there's been no talk of execution. Verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's a strange statement coming from John, isn't it? Did not John say when he came out of the wilderness preaching repentance and baptizing, he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Did he not say, I am not the Christ, but I came to to point others to the Christ and he knew that Jesus was that person? And yet we find him here in Matthew 11 doubting whether or not Jesus is the Christ. I don't know if that gives you any comfort. Because in my mind, I tend to take people like John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul and uh, not so much Peter because we see Peter's blatant 
humanity so many times. But you think about people like this and you put them up here and you think, well, they're, they're the, these people don't have the problems that I have. But they do. They did. They were sinful people just like you and me. Look down, drop down to verse 11. In spite of those sinful shortcomings that John testified, or that was said by John, Jesus testified of John's greatness, and he alluded to that in verse 11. He says, he says there, truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. The only one that was greater than John was Jesus himself. And the apostles, the apostle Paul writes of that. In Romans 9, verse 5, he says, To them, that is to Israel, belongs the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. God over all, the Christ. He's the one that is the highest. He's the one that is the greatest. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, he has given him... Rule far above, he has given him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. There's no one greater than Jesus. No one more powerful than Jesus. John was a reliable, first-hand witness who willingly testified as to the heavenly nature of Jesus Christ. But John was also an earthly witness. There's a better form of witness than that even of John. And that witness is Jesus himself. In fact, John humbles himself even more in this passage as he compares his witness to that of Christ. And he does it in a seven-fold way. Notice, in verses 27, comparing 27 and 35, John was the one who could receive nothing except it was given from heaven in verse 27. And Christ was the one to whom the Father had given over all things in verse 35. John realized that nothing belonged to him, but Christ knew that everything belonged to him from the Father. Second, Jesus was the Christ, whereas John was only the one sent before him. Verse 28. Third, Christ was the bridegroom, where John was simply the friend of the bridegroom, or we might say the the best man of the grooms of the groom himself. Verse 29. By John's own admission, he must decrease and Christ must increase. Great humility. Number five, John was of the earth, 
Whereas the Lord Jesus came from above and is above all. Six, John only had a measure of the Spirit. Christ had the complete fullness of the Spirit. Verse 34. And in verse 35, John was the servant, whereas Christ was the Son. And the Son is always greater than the servant. John's message was a truthful message, and it was John spoke of heavenly things, but his ability to speak of those things was totally outside of himself, and it was limited. John only had a message that was given to him. Jesus, on the other hand, could speak as the one who came from heaven. And therefore, his words were purely divine. And whatever he said of heaven or heavenly things, he spoke by his own witness of them. Now, I want you to notice in the the passage... In verse 31, the words above or from above. This term is coupled with all of the other heavenly themes in this chapter. And it explains that Jesus is greater than any other. He is the one who is from above and therefore above all. The words from above are the same that we find In verse 3, when Jesus said to him, to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or from above. It's the same Greek word, anothen. It means from above. Born from above. He came from heaven, from above. And he brought with him the life of the Father that is found in the new birth. So to try to separate Christ from the new birth or from above is to do away with salvation completely. Because no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. Therefore... Christ is the, is the one who brought that to mankind. All earthly words end in finitude and limitation. His words are infinite and limitless. Even John, with his message of repentance and baptism, could not speak as heaven's spokesman or offer regeneration based on his own merits. John was a born a sinner just like you and me, even though he was filled from the womb with the Holy Spirit. And though he was a man sent from God, he was not the one who could save his people from their sins. The testimony of Jesus Christ is his eyewitness account of heaven as the Son of the Father, with full authority and with all that heaven affords to to lost sinners. Think of it for a second. Look at verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, 
Yet no one receives his testimony. He bears witness. Jesus bears witness from heaven. Under the old covenant, God spoke to his people through the prophets. And the, and the proof of them as prophets speaking from God was the accuracy of their prophecies. Whether they came to pass or not. But in the new covenant, God has chosen to speak directly to people through his son. Before, if you wanted to hear what God said, you had to, the prophet had to come and tell you what God said. And then that had to be followed up with watching to see if what the prophet said came to pass. Now, God speaks directly to people through his son, Jesus Christ. Notice Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, how? By the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So Jesus not only speaks to mankind, but He speaks to them with the authority that has been given to Him from heaven. He was in heaven. With the Father, He came to earth, was born as a human being, and yet completely retaining His full divinity, died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. And it is during this time that He is speaking to people Through his word. He is speaking directly to them. Whenever anyone opens this book. And speaks the words of this book. That's Jesus talking to people. Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus finished these sayings. The crowd was astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. John chapter 7. The officers said. No one ever spoke like this man. In chapter 8. Jesus said. I have much to say. About you. And much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world. That I have heard from him. So the father sent the message to the world through his son. Jesus is now the prophet of prophets. He is the one who now speaks the word of God to people. And even though he is the true witness, the one who brought firsthand testimony to people, No one receives his testimony. That's what John said. They didn't receive his testimony. This sounds like the same words that Jesus spoke in chapter 3, verse 11, 
where he said, Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He said that to Nicodemus and to the Jews. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 43. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If someone else comes in their name, you receive him. John chapter 12, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, still they did not believe. His own people rejected him. And the world at large today, living around you and me, They still reject him too. Even though he is the only way to have life. When John says no one receives his testimony, he means that the Jews didn't receive it. But that's true of all human beings, is it not? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, very familiar verse. You know this verse, this passage. Look at verse 14. The natural person, that is the, the unbelieving person, the person who is still in their sins, unconverted, unredeemed, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. That word folly is the Greek word moria. That's where we get our word moron. Now think about it for a second. That which is, it means that which is ridiculous in thought or thinking. A wildly mistaken, unfounded opinion or idea. In other words, we would say, that's, that's moronic. It's moronic. Now, if you call people a moron, that would make them angry. But that's exactly what the scripture says they are. They're, they're thinking like morons. And they think that of us. They think that of God. To believe this nonsense to them is moronic. The natural person does not accept these things. They are moronic to them. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words... The reason they cannot understand it is because they are dead in their sins. There is no life of God in them. They are not capable of understanding it until God opens their heart and their eyes and regenerates them. Then they see it and they understand it. And they confess it. They're blinded by Satan. And they are dead in their sins and their trespasses. It is obvious that the words of Christ are in full view concerning salvation. In John's last words here, John the Baptist's last words in chapter 3. He is 
speaking the words of the words of Christ and how that they concern salvation, which he came to give to people. Those who do not receive him or see his words as they see his words as moronic, foolishness, something to scorn. They refuse to believe it. John chapter 12, verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, he has a judge. What is the judge? The word that I have spoken to him will judge him on the last day. The very words of Jesus himself will judge the unbelieving on the last day. Think of it. That which people scorn and hate and call foolish moronic thinking will judge them on the last day. That's kind of a depressed that's kind of depressing news. If it were the end of the story However, it's not the end of the story. Because we see in verse 33 that there are those who will receive the words of Jesus and declare that they are God's words and that they are true. In other words, when Jesus speaks, they relate His words as the words of God. So we look in this book, we open this book week after week, day after day, we look into it, and we confess that these are the words of God. And they're true. The believer takes that for face value. That's what it means when it says, he sets his seal to this. Now, a seal in Roman times was a ring with an engraving on it. And whenever a scroll was made, they would drip hot wax onto the... We've seen this done. Hot wax on the edge and they would stamp the, the ring insignia into it. And then that scroll would be sent off and delivered. The seal was set to it. What was in it was important. What was in it was meant to be conveyed to the other party. This is the idea. God has given us His Word and we put our stamp of approval on it and we say, this is God's Word. It is true. Every bit of it. So when Jesus speaks... We relate what he says as the words of God. And Jesus said he always got his message from his father. And the believer takes that for face value. That's what it means to set the seal upon it. Sometimes there were perfect, there were public validations of Christ to people by the father. The father would speak, this is my son, hear him, this is my son, I'm well pleased with him. <clears throat> Sometimes people heard it. Sometimes people just thought it was a thunder. Whatever. 
There were those public validations of Christ to the people from the Father. And other times it was simply Jesus' testimony alone. Such as Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Jesus. And in John chapter 17, verse 8, Jesus said, I have given them your words that you gave me. And they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. That's the validation. That's the seal that is set to it. To receive Jesus' words is to receive the Father's words. For they are one in the same. Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. How did that come to pass? How does that, how is that energized? Verse 34. In verse 34, He speaks of the empowering of the Holy Spirit on the words of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has always been the conveyor of truth, even from an Old Testament standpoint. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And the prophet would speak, and that was God's words. And now the Holy Spirit is using His Son as the spokesman. John himself was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, according to Luke 1.15. However, because of John's fallen human nature, the Spirit could only speak so much through John. Sinners have limitations. There had to be one who came who was sinless. Whom the Spirit could use fully. It was said of the Messiah by the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those things the spirit placed upon the Messiah in limitless measure. That's why when they came to the garden that night after Jesus had prayed, with his disciples. And they said we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said I am. They all fell down. They all fell down backwards on the ground. No one ever spoke like that man did. Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant. Whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I put my spirit on him. And it was limitless. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now Jesus did many great things. He healed people. He did great miracles. 
But the greatest thing that Jesus ever did was to open his mouth and speak the words of the Father to those who would listen to him. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison to those who are bound. That brings us to verse 35 and 36. And the final authority that has been given to the Son. Not authority in part, but authority over all. Jesus Christ has authority over the entire universe. Why? Because the Father loves the Son, and the Father has given to the Son all authority. It is the same love that the Father has given to those who love His Son. If you love the Son, you have the love of the Father. Listen to what He said. John said, I, Jesus said, I in them, and you in me, speaking to the Father, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Even as you loved me. That's the way the Father loves us. Just like He loves His Son. Now there's a further statement given here that is often neglected in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. That is an extremely important verse. Because it is an equation between belief and obedience. Look at what he says again. Whoever believes. The word believes is present tense. So you could say whoever is believing has eternal life. The word has is present tense. So it means you're not waiting for it sometime in the future. You actually have it now. You have eternal life right now. It'll never end. It can't be taken away from you. You can't get rid of it yourself. You have eternal life. Why? Because you are believing in the Son. And the nature of that believing is not something that starts at one moment and then stops at another moment and then starts again at another moment and stops. It never stops once it starts. It continues on, present tense, believing. No matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances of life is, it it keeps on believing. So what does that eternal life, that believing, look like? 
it looks like the second half of this verse. Which says, whoever does not obey the Son does not have life, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. To not obey Christ is proof of not having believed in Christ. So, it is the same as not being saved. It's being, it's being lost in sin. It is to reject the gospel. So, obedience points back to believing. Believing goes forward in obedience. Turn to Acts chapter 5 with me real quick. We've got, we're in good time uh, here. Acts chapter 5 verse, verse 32. <clears throat> Acts 5.32. <clears throat> Apostles have been arrested again for preaching the gospel, for preaching Jesus. Comes down to verse 32. And they said, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who what? Obey him. So what is the obedience he's talking about? It is the obedience to the gospel. It's obedience to the the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ both died, was buried, and rose again. And repentance and faith in His name is that obedience. Once that believing starts, it goes on. And the obedience that we have toward Christ and toward the gospel and toward the word of God points back to our believing him, our being saved, our conversion. So obedience is the fruit of salvation, not the means of it. No one is saved by doing works and being uh, works of obedience. That could never save you. That's Paul's message in Galatians. You cannot be saved or redeemed by the works of the law. It's only by faith in Christ, by believing in Christ alone for salvation. And so there must be then a change of heart and desires that seeks to obey God, that wants to walk in God's ways. To obey Jesus is the same as being saved for an unbeliever Never wants to obey Christ. What do they care about obeying Christ? What did you care about obeying Christ before you were saved? You didn't, you didn't care. I didn't care. Oh, I might have had twinges of guilt about some things I did because I was taught not to do those things and, and, but it had nothing to do with God. The sad truth is, however, that those who do not believe Never escape 
the wrath of God. It, it hangs over them in this life. And it finds its completion in the final judgment. They are currently under God's wrath. That's present tense. And will be eternally the recipient of his wrath in the lake of fire mentioned in Revelation chapter 20 verses 10 to 15. Why? Because they refused to obey the gospel and believe in Christ alone. John's testimony is that Jesus is the divine Son of God and His sovereignty and supremacy emphasizes that He alone can save sinners from their sin and He will save them if they repent and believe. He will save them. That's the message we take to the world, to our friends, to our family. The promise of God is that if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone to forgive and save you from your sins, He will. That's being obedient to the gospel. And then other obediences follow that in service and life. John's message is a a very important one. One that we need to take to heart and warn others with great love for their situation that was once ours. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, that you would bless as we continue to serve you and, and love you and seek to be obedient to you, may we show the world, I pray, that you are indeed the one who saved us and we believe in you and are believing. And because of that, you have given us eternal life. Pray that you would open hearts, strengthen your children to live for you and walk with you day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.